The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Perry, are you all right? Oh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking. They say that Lucifer was the brightest star in the heaven. That's what makes evil so seductive. You mean the NSBA? Yeah. On the outside, it seemed so good. On the inside, they were evil. <laughs> hey, but the gun, right? We kicked butt. Superman kicked butt. Yeah, well, for now, they're gone. But, you know, ideas don't die. I mean, we thought we got rid of the Nazis once. And here they are back again. That's why I always like to say it. Uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. It's a great line. Well, Thomas Jefferson said it first. He picked up Truman Black a few minutes ago. Senator Black? He's a Nazi? Apparently he was one of their high mucky mucks. I've known him since I was Jimmy's age. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 5th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where we'll be talking about patterns of force, mainly the political type. Why conservatives are on the defensive all the time, the convenience of inconvenience, and us versus them, science by consensus. And by the way, all of these themes are continuing along our line of eco-fascism, which we've been talking about for about two weeks running now. This should be the third and final installment of this particular run, certainly not an issue that's going to go away. If you care to join in on the conversation today, 519-661-3600 is the line, line you can call right in. Michael will be answering the phone for you. And you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com or, of course, visit our website, justrightmedia.org, where all that information is available to you, including a complete archive of all our past shows. Now, first, before I get into some of these subjects, I'd like to start by reminding you that you can, of course, email your comments, questions, and observations to us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And that's exactly what Rob S. did. And folks, unless you give me permission to use your last name, I generally won't refer to your last name on the air, but if it doesn't bother you, I will. But otherwise, I'll just go by first names. And uh, these writers did give me their full names, by the way. Rob uh, wrote to thank me for, quote, systematically and objectively dismantling socialist behavior and left-wing politics while effectively illustrating their absurdities, end quote. And thank you, Rob, for your kind comments and for letting us know that you're a regular listener to the show. And, of course, I hope that's one of the things that we are providing on this show is basically almost a, an audio database for people to refer to to get information that might not otherwise be available, I think, as you'll learn certainly from today's show. Now, to answer your question, uh, Rob had a question as well. He says, can a person simply stop paying property taxes without consequence? And I guess the simple answer to that is no. As I understand it, in the city of London and probably in most municipalities in Ontario, 
uh, you can allow your property taxes to fall up to three years in arrears, after which the city will basically serve notice that your house will be sold to cover taxes owing, plus, of course, interest on amounts owing, and, and if any subsequent purchaser came along too, even while your taxes were in arrears, they would have to bring them up to date. So that comes out of your purchase price, of course. And, uh, of course, which is why your property taxes are really like paying rent to the city for to occupy property you already own, theoretically. We'll talk about a lot more about that whole property rights issue in the future. We also received a couple of emails from listener Martin D., who passed on a couple of news items further to our current ongoing eco-fascism theme begun two weeks ago and continued last week. One article was on light bulbs and the other on chemicals. Uh, thanks for passing those along to us, Martin. They fit in perfectly into this week's third installment and consecutive show on our eco-fascism theme. And you'll be hearing me refer to at least one of them, if not both, uh, later on in the show today. But first, Us versus Them, Science by Consensus, continuing our, in our third installment on this whole uh, issue of global warming, which I've been arguing from the beginning is not about the environment per se. It's always that age-old battle between basically uh, collectivism and individualism, socialism versus capitalism, however you want to put it. Fascism, of course, is the operative word because uh, one of the things we're trying to get across is not much difference between fascism and socialism or communism in theory. Only the way they look at property. That's the only thing that really makes them different. Now, of course, for the big argument that we're getting from the global warming advocates, the David Suzuki's and the Al Gore's, etc., is that uh, you know that the, the whole debate's over because they've got the numbers to prove it. That there is a scientific consensus. In fact, last week when I uh, brought up the uh, the how to talk to a global warming skeptic guide, which is online, the gristmill. Um, one of the questions was that, and we went through some of them last week. Of course, some of the uh, supposed responses to things that, for example, people like me are saying on this show. And here's one, and this is from that same uh, website. There is no consensus, and the, they basically word the objection like this. Climate is complicated, and there are lots of competing theories and unsolved mysteries. Until this is all worked out, one can't claim that there's a consensus on global warming theory. Until there is, we should not take any action. Uh, this is similar to the global warming is a hoax article, but at least here we can narrow down just what the consensus is about. And here's their answer. Sure, there are plenty of unsolved problems and active debates in climate science, but if you look at the research papers coming out these days, the debates are about things like why model predictions of outgoing long-wave radiation at the top of the atmosphere in tropical latitudes different from satellite readings, or how the size of ice crystals and cirrus clouds affects the amount of incoming shortwave reflected back into space, or precisely how much stratospheric cooling can be attributed to ozone depletion rather than an enhanced greenhouse effect. No one in the climate science community is debating whether or not changes in atmospheric CO2 concentrations alter the greenhouse effect or if the current warming trend is outside of the range of natural variability or if sea levels have risen over the past century. This is where there is a consensus, says the How to Talk to Global Warming Skeptic Guide. Now, that might be their consensus, but I have to tell you from everything I've been seeing, this, everything they said there is just a complete fabricated outright fabrication it's a lie Lawrence Solowin director of energy probe in the May 17th 2008 National Post headline 
32,000 deniers. We've talked about the Oregon petition before on this show. Well, there's an update on that now, because when I started talking about it a year ago, there were about 17,800 signatures on it. Well, that's gone up to 32,000 plus, and here's the story. The Oregon petition garnered an astounding 17,800 signatures, a number all the more astounding because of the unequivocal stance that these scientists took. Not only did they they dispute that there was convincing evidence of harm from CO2 emissions, they asserted that Kyoto itself would harm the global environment because, quote, increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide produce many beneficial effects upon the natural plant and animal environments of the earth. The petition drew media attention, but like the Heidelberg appeal, the Oregon petition was blown away. But... Or, or original signatories to the petition and others outraged at Kyoto's corruption of science wrote to the Oregon Institute and its director, Arthur Robinson, asking that the petition be brought back. Using a subset of the mailing list of American men and women of science, a who's who of science, Robinson mailed out his solicitations through the Postal Service, requesting signed petitions of those who agreed that Kyoto was a danger to humanity. Remember, that's a bigger issue than just global warming. They're actually going completely the other way. The response rate was extraordinary. He's processed more than 31,000 at this point, more than 9,000 of them PhDs, and has another 1,000 or so to go, most of them already posted on a website at petitionproject.org. So there's a place you can go if you want to see them. Some 32,000 scientists is more than the number of environmentalists in total that descended on Rio in 1992. Is this not enough to establish that the science is not settled on global warming? End quote. And on May, 8, or May 20th, 2008, in the National Post, Lauren Gunter's, quote, so much for settled science, end quote, reports that Rajendra Pakhari, head of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, reluctantly admitted that there has been no global warming so far in the 21st century. This is not something any alarmist predicted, and it showed up in none of the UN's computer projections. Quote, Less well known is that global temperatures have already been falling for a decade. Boy, that's not what you hear in the free press, is it? It is drummed into us ad nauseum that the IPCC represents 2,500 scientists who together embrace a consensus that man-made global warming is a scientific fact, and as recently as last year, they didn't see this cooling coming. So the alarmists can't weasel out of, out of this by claiming that they knew all along that such anomalies would occur. Last year, for instance, saw a drop in the global average temperature of nearly 0.7 degrees centigrade, the largest single-year movement up or down since global temperature averages have been calculated. Despite advanced predictions that 2007 would be the warmest year on record made by such UN associates as Britain's Hadley Center, a government climate research agency, 2007 was actually the coolest year since 1993. According to the U.S. National Climatic Data Center, the average temperature of the global land surface in January 2008 was below the 20th, 20th century mean for the first time since 1982, end quote. And Gunter provides us even more stats reported by other sources, all pointing to a cooling of the earth over the past decade or so. Yet he concludes, and listen to this, quote, Does this prove that global warming isn't happening? No but it should introduce doubt into the claim that the science of global warming is settled, end quote. Now, of course, not everyone agrees with him. Dr. Diane 
Srivastava, Associate Professor, University of B.C., disagrees with Gunter in her May 24th National Post letter to the editor, and she writes, Mr. Gunter further argues that we are in a cooling spell because 1998 temperatures are warmer than 2007. This is simply disingenuous. Scientists, unlike newspaper columnists, don't fit a line through two data points. Instead, we maximize our statistical power by using as much data as possible. The analysis unequivocally says that the globe is warming, slowly but inexorably. End quote. Well, speaking of disingenuous, Gunter did not say that we're in a cooling spell, quote, because 1998 was warmer than 2007. I just read it to you. Okay, did she read it? His choice of comparing those two years was because the predictors of global warming insisted, they kept insisting that 2007 would be the hottest year on record since 1998, you know, like end of the world, right? And it was the coldest, and not just since 1998, but since 1993. And, like, I mean, that's you got to say that's kind of like 100% the opposite, not just off a little, okay? And that was the point that was being made. As to his arguing that we are in a cooling spell, uh, let's requote what I just read. Quote, does this mean that global warming isn't happening? No, end quote. So, you know, who's being disingenuous here? One would think, given the title uh, associate professor, you know, that the letter writer would have perhaps read Gunter's article to the end and not distort his very clearly stated argument into something it clearly did not mean to convey. So I guess the lesson here is, do scientists and professors show bias? You bet they do. And if you want to find someone's bias, you know, whether they adopt an objective approach to an issue or very subjective, it's always in the way they state their case and what, to, what do they appeal to for proof or what do they re reject as proof? Um, you know, and these things would be evidence, reason, faith, consensus, science, or mysticism. And I'll leave it to you to figure out which ones are the ones that are the good ones and the bad ones. But, of course, the debate doesn't even end there. You want to see numbers? The numbers keep coming. Even more deniers on climate, writes Tom Harris, executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition, who, by the way, was a guest on this very show about a year ago, and we're going to have him back sometime. And uh, in an editorial letter to the National Post on May 24th, quote, important to add to Larry Solomon's list of petitions and other documents that debunk the notion of consensus in the climate science community is the Manhattan Declaration on Climate Change. Created at the 2008 International Conference on Climate Change in New York City by the International Climate Science Coalition, the declaration calls on world leaders to reject the views expressed by the UN Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, as well as popular but misguided works such as An Inconvenient Truth. All taxes, regulations, and other interventions intended to reduce emissions of carbon dioxide should be abandoned forthwith, the declaration signatories conclude. Now, bear in mind, these declarations are not just simple things saying, yeah, we think it's getting warmer, it's getting colder. They're making some very specific and uh, you know, more detailed declarations than what you're getting from the other side. Now, he says, perhaps the most significant among the declaration's assertions one, there is no convincing evidence that CO2 emissions from modern industrial activity have in the past, are now, or will in the future cause catastrophic climatic change. They're saying there's no evidence of that, nothing that could convince them. Two, attempts by governments to legislate costly regulations on industry and individual citizens to encourage CO2 reduction will slow development while having no appreciable impact on the future trajectory of global climate change. 
Such policies will markedly diminish future prosperity and in so doing reduce the ability of societies to adapt to inevitable climate change, thereby increasing and not decreasing human suffering. End quote. And Tom Harris, inform, uh, Tom Harris informs us that the Manhattan Declaration was originally endorsed by 500 people, 150 of whom are specific experts in the field of climate. However, the coalition has now opened up its declaration online to members of the public from all walks of life who are encouraged to endorse the Manhattan Declaration. Quote, because of the fact that everyone, not just scientists, will be detrimentally affected if governments continue to yield to climate campaigners, we have opened endorsement up to everyone, explains Harris. And the place to visit online, if you want to add your name to that list, it's www.climatescienceinternational.org. And that's where you can go if you want to sign up on that list. Now, when we come back after this, the convenience of inconvenience, which is really what the whole global thing's about. We'll be back right after this. Gentlemen, he means us. Yes, sir. These are the men I was telling you about. Boys, I want you to meet Mr. Amscray, Mr. One. Hailstone, Gallstone, Pebble. How do you do? We've come here to offer you the greatest opportunity of your life. You mean you let us paper the living room? No, no, no. You're through with papering. My partners and I are going to make you dictator of Maronica. Dictator? What does a dictator do? A dictator? Why, he makes love to beautiful women, drinks champagne, enjoys life, and never works. He makes speeches to the people, promising them plenty, gives them nothing, then takes everything. That's a dictator. Hmm, a parasite. That's for me. Quiet. So I, uh, I got to come back into Canada recently, and uh, I was traveling there quite a bit. And I, whenever I come back into uh, Canada or going to the States, I always get freaked out either way because of the customs, you know? Because we're two nice, peaceful countries. And then we got this little strip of Gestapo land between us, you know? <laughs> just the meanest sons of guns you ever did meet. They don't want a joke or nothing. Just, what do you got? And I always get freaked out. I don't even do anything illegal, but I always panic before getting to the border. It's all, how much cheese do I have? How much am I allowed, you know? <laughs> Throw some of the cheese out the window. And, and you wouldn't get all that panicky if they didn't have so much darn power, you know? Those people can do things to you that nobody else can do, you know? And just arbitrarily, too. Like, like for instance, they can, uh, if they want to, at any point, they can, like, uh, uh, look in your bum. <laughs> That's too much power. And I don't remember voting for that, do you? Because that should be a big campaign. Look at our bums. We say no. Uh-uh. Proposition 12, uh-uh. Proposition 12 got my vote. <laughs> I always wondered about that, you know. How come they give them so much power at the border? You can't do that in normal police investigation. In good heavens, you shouldn't be able to go into someone's bodily cavities unless, unless they're carrying some kind of a bomb that's going to explode everybody around them. I just don't think any other crime is almost worth that. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, and we'll be with you from now till noon talking about climate science, climate politics, and all the rest of it. And 519-661-3600, the number to call if you'd like to call. The convenience of inconvenience. You know, if there's one thing that can be said for Al Gore's 
an inconvenient truth. It's aptly named, isn't it? Because inconvenience is exactly what the film really preaches. And at the root of all environmentalism, I think, is a deep abiding hatred of any lifestyle that seeks convenience and comfort and dares to do anything more than subsist at the necessity level, if you would. The pursuit of happiness, uh, which basically means the pursuit of something more than subsistence, is definitely not on the environmental agenda. Now, the following events, announcements, and proclamations are not isolated news stories, even though you get them that way delivered to you in the media, nor are they merely coincidental in their similarities. There's a very strong thing uniting them all. It's not a conspiracy. Conspiracies don't happen that way, except in the obvious sense. If there's a conspiracy out there, it's right under your nose. They're telling you what they're doing. <laughs> and everybody's a conspiracy. Any two people who plan a business are conspiring, if you want to look at it that way. But all are driven, uh, you know, by the same philosophical base. And if you want to see the watchword, the watchword is ban, okay? Ban driving, ban pesticides, ban chemicals, ban cell phone use in cars, ban smoking in private restaurants and bars, ban air conditioning, ban plastic water bottles, ban the display of cigarettes in private stores, ban plastic shopping bags, ban drive through restaurants, ban light bulbs, ban having children, or in other words, ban reason, common sense, and freedom itself, because that's what they're doing. And of course, ban having any meaningful discussion on any of these issues or any debates. Now, if there's one thing that all of these banned, restricted, and regulated, regulated items have in common, is that they represent conveniences, pleasures, or any product or activity that goes beyond necessity. Have you ever noticed that? Keep an eye on it. You'll see, you'll see it almost as a steady pattern and anything that's above a bare level of subsistence. Go ahead, spray those chemicals if you need them, but don't spray them if it's for beauty or for cosmetics or for personal preference. Uh, you know, a second thing they all have in common is that they're driven by this uh, social, physical, spiritual philosophy of eco-fascism, or which you call just plain old-fascism. Uh, social, physical, spiritual, those are the, the real catchwords of all mass movements of that sort. And a third thing they'll have in common is that they are all uh, technologies basically being banned for individuals. Have you noticed that? While at the other end of the political scale, technologies are being forced upon us collectively, so-called so green technologies, and we got into the whole light bulb thing and everything last week. So if you look at the message, the, the, the fundamental message that we're getting from, from the green movement, it's, it's go primitive, go back to manual labor, don't drive, you can walk, don't use chemicals, you can pick your own weeds out of your lawn one by one, don't use your cell phone while driving, wait till you get to Toronto and check your messages to find out that you didn't have to go to Toronto in the first place. Don't be cool and comfortable on a hot, humid day. Turn off your air conditioner and be hot and sweaty and irritable so that you can prove you're smellier than the guy in Kitchener. And make sure you let MPP Chris Bentley know about it because he wants to know and measure your participation. You'll be hearing about that a little later. Don't buy water in convenient plastic containers. Line up at public fountains shared by all members of the public so as to better help spread communicable diseases and to enjoy a close-up view of the pigeon droppings and who knows what else while supping from your favorite local water fountain. <laughs> Don't carry your groceries in convenient, reusable, and recyclable plastic bags. Use inconvenient, non-reusable paper bags instead. Don't drive to a don't go to a drive-through. If you can find a parking spot in the small lot, then park. 
get yourself, your, your wife, the kids, the dog all out of the car and tromp into the store. Or better still, leave the wife and kids in the running car and walk through the rain and thunder or the snow and cold to get into and out of the restaurant. Stand in line inside. Hurry, because there's a lot of cars circling the lot waiting for your parking spot to open up. Sound like something you want to go through as if. Now, what I have here, that's basically my argument. Now what I have here is a lot of evidence of this argument, the kind of things that we're hearing. And I've got so much of this stuff, I could go on for the whole show. I'm going to break quickly uh, with the evidence at around the bottom of the hour, and I want to have time later in the show, we'll come back to it, because I want to make sure I do cover some of the other areas that I've got planned for today. For example, here is uh, one piece. Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty announces that the government is considering banning all handheld electronic devices while driving in cars. And of course, this isn't about global warming per se, but it's still about that type of thinking. Uh, and a secondary consideration was banning all distracting electronic devices. Now, I have to ask myself, is, is like a CD or a DVD or an audio tape an electronic device? Or what about a handheld paper map versus a handheld electronic map? You know, because I was picked on electronic. What's that about? Is the watch on my wrist considered handheld or distracting? It runs on a battery, so it's, it's electronic. But I also have a wind-up watch I could wear while driving so as to avoid being charged for electronic possession. <laughs> you know? And if the watch on my wrist isn't handheld, then can I simply strap a phone to my wrist and keep my hands free while I raise my arm to my ear? You know, you can just see all the, the minutiae that we have to deal with. I heard a police officer on the radio talk in a couple of weeks. He says, yeah, they have to think about why they pull somebody over. Can they just pull you over because they see you raise your hand to your ear because you had to scratch or something like that? Uh, you know, light bulbs. Uh, I told you my personal story of inconvenience and waste with regard to light bulbs on last week's show. Uh now, this is one of the articles that was sent to me by Martin D. Thanks, Martin. And this is the one that reads, Light bulb ban will increase CO2, argues Andrew Longman in a January 22nd, 08 posting to WorldNet Daily. Noting that some homes in Sweden are heated entirely with incandescent light bulbs, he writes, quote, Regular Thomas Edison-style incandescent bulbs throw off a large amount of heat. When you purchase a 100-watt light bulb, that power rating refers to what the bulb consumes, not to what it illuminates. The U.S. Congress recently passed a law yanking incandescent lights from production and replacing them all with compact fluorescents. Wisdom has been mandated. The net result, of course, will be more fossil fuels burned and more CO2 released. If we remove a 100-watt incandescent and replace it with a 20-dot compact fluorescent, the light in the room may not dim, but the warmth in that room has been cut by about 80 watts. If the thermostat doesn't change its setting, then the lost wattage will have to come from your furnace or boiler or however else you heat the home. So your heating bill will go up in other areas. And one must recognize that whereas electric heat comes from a mix of nuclear power, coal, and other sources, natural gas heating comes exclusively from burning things. So electric heat chiefly because nuclear power produces no oxidized carbon, pollutes less, end quote. Now, of course, that's no reason to believe that uh, heating with gas pollutes either. They're talking about carbon dioxide, which is not even really a pollutant, but he's using their own arguments against them, of course. And then there's chemicals for lawns, for pests, for whatever. You heard the reality of the ban on DDT and on how many millions of lives it has cost on last week's show, thanks to John Stossel's report. 
on that subject. Mother Nature is killing millions, 50 million and counting, of her human children on the continent of Africa and the spread of malaria, all thanks to the ban of DDT. And in a perfect parallel to that story, and this is your other one that you sent us, Martin, um, who sent to my attention this piece from the Ottawa Citizen, written by Dan Gardner, in which the writer points out how 2,4-D, one of the most common pesticides, is safe when used as directed. There is reasonable certainty that no harm to human health, future generations, or the environment will result from use or exposure to the product, says Health Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency. Meanwhile, reports Gardner, quote, Ontario is in the process of banning lawn and garden pesticides, most of which contain 2,4-D. Studies by public health experts are showing growing evidence of the potential health risks of pesticides, reads a press release from the McGuinty government, particularly for children. But Health Canada says that's not true, at least not with respect to 2,4-D. Risks to homeowners and their children from contact with treated lawns and turf are not of concern, PMRA writes. Regulatory reviews in the European Union, New Zealand, and the United States all came to the same conclusion. And so did a review by the World Health Organization. No exception, just like John Stossel told you last week. So you would think that Health Canada's announcement would be major news. And yet it wasn't major news. It wasn't even minor news. In fact, as far as I can make out, it wasn't reported in any newspaper, end quote. Now, here's the real clincher to his story. Gardner called the Ontario Ministry of Health to ask if the clear verdict on 2,4-D would, you know, affect the ban, and maybe they take the ban off. And then he writes, quote, Apparently not. When I asked if this would change the government's view of the safety of 2,4-D, the spokesman responded, quote, It's not a safety issue, end quote. Huh? Practically every statement in the McGinty government is made, has made about the ban includes the claim that it will protect human health, especially children's health, end quote. And that's not a safety issue? No, says the spokesperson, the issue's not public health. Our issue is you want to keep it out of the environment as much as you can, end quote. So there, just because, just like the lady said to John Stossel last week after he told her there's millions dying in Africa, and she says, oh, well, we like our method better, and we're going to keep it this way, cause, well, just because. Uh, and the because is, of course, because some bureaucrats and politicians have the power to do it, and because our, our inconvenience will continually remind us who the boss is. Now we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about why conservatives are on the defensive all the time. Back after this. My good people of Moronica, I am very happy to see this little gathering. We must throw off the Oki and make our country safe for hypocrisy. Your Excellency, I caught this man walking down the street with a chicken. Blonde brunette. Quiet. Where did you get the chicken? From an egg. Where'd you get the egg? Uh, from a chicken. A vicious cycle. We must kill it. Remind me to kill a cycle. Quiet. Put him in a concentrated camp. Come on. Go on As Minister of Propaganda, I don't want to hear from you. Oh. What's the matter with him? He's a little grouchy. He got up on the wrong side of the gutter this morning. Shall we gaze into the magic ball and see what the future holds for you? Come along. I'm going to take him up on the roof and overthrow him. Whip out your magic ball, Maddie. Dickle, 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 nickel. 
Why, that's an eight ball. Sit right down behind it. Yeah. The magic ball says you have not long to live. Oh, goody. <laughs> If I take Mickey Finland, I better be Russian. Then quit Stalin. So be it. It's time for our round table conference. How can we have a round table conference? We only got a square table. Oh, in Moronica, nothing is on the square. We shall have to cut corners. Get busy. I'm cutting. Gentlemen, let us begin to begin. As minister of Umfola, I object. Your minorities are creeping into our majorities until you're making our majorities minorities. Objection overruled. Peace! Peace. We, we want peace. What we want is a corridor through Double Cross here as an outlet into the Bay of Window. Quiet! The gentlemen object. Appease them. How about throwing them to the new lions? No, let's appease them. I just love appeasing. My sense is outrageous. I don't know how many of you are fans of the Three Stooges. I understand women generally are not. Is that true, Alex? No? You're a fan? <laughs> uh, because uh, I just introduced the Three Stooges to my grandson last week, and uh, his, his, the, the main thing that got him going was when, when his mom told him that girls basically don't like the Three Stooges too much. But if you listen to some of what was said in some of those clips there, um, just incredibly clever. you got to listen to every sentence, and maybe if you don't know that much about history, you might not know the subtleties of everything they're saying, even from the point of picking the wall hanger to, to be the, the paper wall hanger to, to being the dictator. Uh, you know, wonderful memories of World War II, I guess, huh? Oh, well. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. I'm Bob Metz, and we're going to be with you from now until noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us. Front page headline, May 29th, National Post. Exxon CEO fends off green attack. In that article, reporter Claudia Cantanillo writes, quote, and this is out of Dallas, Texas, Rex Tillerson, chairman and chief executive of Exxon Mobil Corporation, the world's largest oil and gas company, came out swinging yesterday, which would be, of course, the 28th of May, uh, against the environmental movement arguing that the science of climate change is far from settled and that his company views it as corporate social responsibility to continue to supply the world with fossil fuels. Speaking to reporters after the annual meeting of shareholders, during which proposals by the Rockefeller family calling for new investment in renewable energy received very little support, that's interesting, Mr. Tillerson said he expects little delay in the $8 billion Curl Oil Sands project in Alberta after a court challenge by environmental organizations this month resulted in the withdrawal of a key federal permit, halting important work. Avoiding the political correctness that many oil executives are now showing on global warming, Mr. Tillerson called for a continuation of the debate, rather than acceptance that it is occurring, with the potential consequence that governments will implement policies that put world economies at risk. My view is that this is so extraordinarily important to people the world over that to not have a debate on it is irresponsible, he said. 
to suggest that we know everything we need to know about these issues is irresponsible. And I will take all the criticism that comes with it, he added. Anyone who tells you that they got this thing figured out is not being truthful. There are too many complexities around climate science for anybody to fully understand all of the causes and effects and consequences of what you may choose to do to attempt to affect that. We have to let scientists continue their investigative work unencumbered by political influences. This is too important to be cute with it, end quote. Uh, Mr. Tillerson said ExxonMobil, despite its reputation as a staunch climate change denier, is in fact close to the issue as the only oil company that is in fact a member of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. How do you like that? They're actually a member. Did you know that? Lori Goldstein in the May 29th London Free Press writes, While E. Coyote can't fix climate and reports that, uh, or comments rather, that for, quote, forever unsuccess unsuccessful in capturing the roadrunner, while E. Coyote is proof of the wise old saying that a good definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results. That's why these days I can't help but think of Wiley E. Coyote whenever I hear liberal leader Stefan Dion touting a carbon tax. Now that, even as the Globe and Mail finally reported yesterday on its front page, citizens in huge swatches of Europe and the United Kingdom are openly revolting against them, condemning them as nothing more than tax grabs by politicians. It's why the same image came to mind when I heard NDP leader Jack Layton yesterday praising a cap-and-trade system for pricing carbon, even though Europe's three-year-old cap-and-trade system, known as the Emissions Trading Scheme, has become a playground for market speculators and hedge funds while leading to skyrocketing electricity prices and doing next to nothing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. And from his chapter, The New Age, We're All Fascists Now, Johann Goldberg, whose book I introduced last week on called Liberal Fascism, makes a very interesting comment, which might sum up a couple of the things you've heard already so far on, just in this section. Quote, even though free market conservatives have a great deal to offer when it comes to the environment, they are permanently on the defensive. Everyone cares about the environment, quote-unquote, just as everyone cares about the children, quote-unquote. For ideological environmentalists, that means buying into a holistic vision of the earth and of humans as just another species. For conservatives, we are stewards of the earth, and that means making informed choices between competing goods. Many so-called environmentalists are, in fact, conservationists, using property rights and market mechanisms to conserve natural resources for posterity. Many on the left believe we must romanticize nature in order to create the political will to save it. But when such romanticism becomes a substitute religion and dissenters heretics, conservatives need to make it clear that environmental utopianism is as impossible as any other attempt to create a heaven on earth." End quote. Well, as much as I've praised everything else about this book, it is here that I think Goldberg kind of drops the ball, particularly in reference to his own argument and case, even his own case. And he's arguing here from a completely, what we call, is a non-essential base. If you want to know why conservatives are always on the defensive, it's very simple. It is their failure to defend the morality of capitalism and freedom that has caused conservatives to be permanently on the defensive. They won't do it. They just won't do it. It's the failure of conservatives to, to condemn the morality of the left 
which the left is constantly and justifiably able to do to the right wing because the right wing implicitly accepts all the values uh, that the left holds, and that's where the problem is. Uh, you know, particularly, you know, altruism through government, which is, which is a left-wing thing, and that's why it becomes right-wing and fascistic, and that's where the conservatives are sitting, right in that target zone. And that's what they are. They're a sitting target for the left, in fact. You can talk all you want, and I do this too. I'm not saying this is not relevant, but it's not relevant to this debate if you want to win it. You can talk about market mechanisms. You can talk about conservation if you want. Free markets, all of which are good things. Uh, or even by, you know, why religious utopianism is impossible, etc. But none of that addresses the fundamental moral issues. I think the right wing needs to start listening to Al Gore and start listening to the other eco-fascists because they've done in the past and they continue to do so now and will continue to do so re relentlessly. They will stress the point that the whole environmental issue is a moral issue. Pick up that ball, guys. That's the one you got to go with. You got to go with that moral issue, but that means you have to be able to demonstrate first of all what's the difference between humans and every other species on the planet. Do you know? I don't hear I don't hear conservatives talking about that too much. And if you're going to fight religion, the, the religion of environmentalism, then you can't use religious arguments to bolster your case. That's a lose-lose situation. So until leaders and supporters of any party, you know, start to learn to embrace freedom and capitalism, our drift towards fascism and socialism's worst, worst consequences are kind of inevitable. And they might not be the dramatic thing you think they will be. It's just a matter of a constant deterioration in general well-being and lifestyle, and certainly when compared to what it might be otherwise. going to take a quick break now, and when we come back after this, we're going to look at what I'm calling patterns of force, basically, uh, what are the patterns of force that, that run politics and the whole mechanism of government, and in particular with regard to the global warming issue, back right after this. Gil. Gil, why did you abandon your mission? Why did you interfere with this culture? Planet fragmented, divided, took lesson from... Earth history. But why Nazi Germany? You studied history, you knew what the Nazis were. Most efficient state Earth ever knew. Quite true, Captain. A tiny country, beaten, bankrupt, defeated, rose in a few years to stand only one step away from global domination. But it was brutal, perverted. Had to be destroyed at a terrible cost. Why that example? Perhaps Gill felt that such a state, run benignly, could accomplish its efficiency without sadism. Why, Gil? Why? Worked. At first, it worked. Then I never will understand humans. How could a man as brilliant, a mind as logical as John Gill's, have made such a fatal error? You drew the wrong conclusion from history. The problem with the Nazis wasn't simply that their leaders were evil, psychotic men. They were. But the main problem, I think, was the leader principle. 
What he's saying, Spock, is that a man holds that much power, even with the best intentions, just can't resist the urge to play God. Thank you, Doctor. I was able to gather the meaning. And I hope the rest of us gather the meaning as well. That, of course, was from an episode of Star Trek actually called Patterns of Force, very appropriately. And it was a science fiction view, of course, creating a silly situation where they run into this planet that has a duplicate uh, Nazi system. And, of course, it was meant to just point out that this is a pattern of government. And, you know, the one character there who was advocating things, their fascist system, his comment, at first it worked. You'll hear every fascist leader say that. That is pragmatism cocking, okay? That's the name of the philosophy that that is attached to. At first it worked. And all totalitarian systems work, quote, end quote, at first. And there's a reason for that, and that's because the best analogy is, for example, take your credit card. If the idea is to live high off the hog without putting too much effort into it, you can take that credit card when you get it new, and when it doesn't have any credit built up on it, you can go out and spend and spend and only make a minimum payment. And you're pr- living pretty good. And then eventually one day the credit card gets to the limit. And you have to start paying more into the credit card than you can get out of it. And then it doesn't work anymore, does it? And that's what most people mean in politics when they say it worked. It worked while they were getting into debt, bankrupting the nation, uh, pulling everybody down. Then, quote, it worked. And that's been the pattern of history. Now, interestingly enough, um, From Communism to Environmentalism reads the heading by Vaclav Klaus, President of the Czech Republic, in a National Post excerpt from his book, Blue Planet in Green Shackles, which was presented to the National Press Club in Washington on May 27, 2008. Now, I've read the words of the Czech leader more than once before on this show, and in this particular essay, he discusses how, quote, I spent most of my life under the communist regime which ignored and brutally violated human freedom and wanted to command not only the people, but also nature. This experience taught me that freedom and rational dealing with the environment are indivisible. End quote. In his essay, he talks about how the structure, operation, and thinking behind communism and environmentalism are exactly the same. Quote, like their predecessors, they will be certain that they have the right to sacrifice man and his freedom to make their ideas a reality, end quote. And then he gets into it. Quote, and this is what I call the good part. My deep frustration, remember this is the president of the Czech Republic. My deep frustration has been growing exponentially in recent years due to the facts that almost everything has already been said that all rational arguments have been used and that global warming alarmism is still marching on. The whole process is already in the hands of those who are not interested in rational ideas and arguments. It is in the hands of climatologists and other related scientists who are highly motivated to look in one direction only because a large number of academic careers have evolved around the idea of man-made global warming. The basic questions of the current climate change debate are sufficiently known and well-structured. One, do we live in an era of statistically significant non-accidental and non-cyclical climate change? Two, if so, is it dominantly man-made? Three, if so, should such a moderate temperature increase bother us more than any other pressing problems we face, and should it receive our extraordinary attention? And four, if we want to change the climate, can it be done? 
our current attempts to do so with the best allocation of our scarce resources? My answer to all these questions, says the President of Czechoslovakia, is no, but with a difference in emphasis. I don't aspire to measure the global temperature, nor to estimate the importance of factors which make it. This is not the area of my comparative advantage. But to argue, as it's done by many contemporary environmentalists, that these questions have already been answered with, an un with a consensual yes and that there is an unchallenged scientific consensus about this is unjustified. It is also morally and intellectually deceptive, end quote. Now, here's a world leader who understands the nature of his enemy and on what grounds they have to be faced. And, of course, he's being oh so kind when he calls environmentalists morally and intellectually deceptive, you know. Translation, he's basically calling them liars, who, in fact, are the true deniers in the climate debate, and immoral for opposing freedom and choice and morality. And that's why he's, on both of these counts, has my vote if I could vote for him, but, of course, I can't. Now... Can't believe it. That's actually where I've finished the show as far as the basic subjects I wanted to cover. Now I can get back to more of those uh, examples we got into the convenience of inconvenience and see how far we can get with them by the end of the hour. Uh, just, just to keep them in mind, you know, to always, that's what they're there for, to make you remember that something's inconvenient. One of the things is this whole plastic bag thing, okay? Only with handles, you know, of all the bags, <laughs> the most recyclable. And uh, plastic bag lobby against LCBO bag ban challenges science, uh, says the National Post, May 28th, uh, Jordana Huber. Quote, we don't quite understand why they see this as an environmental decision and then hang on to paper bags, said Serge Lavoie, president of the Canadian Plastics Industry Association. Paper bags are far worse use of natural resources and emit far more greenhouse gases at the end of their life cycle than plastic. The LCBO said switching to more environmentally friendly alternatives will eliminate 80 million plastic bags a year from landfills. While the government has no plans to institute a wider plastic ba bag ban, uh, Public Infrastructure Minister David Kaplan, who is responsible for the LCBO, said the move is one more step toward better environmental practices, end quote. Now, get this, and remember this one for later, you know, cause, or for what I said before, rather, about the conservatives and the environmental movement. Quote, progressive conservative leader John Tory said Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty should tell the LCBO to immediately pull all plastic bags and send them to recycling rather than wait until they run out. McGuinty professes to be a great leader in these kinds of things, and I think that if he was, he'd say, ban it now, end quote. So great leadership to John Tory is about how fast you can ban things without even giving it a second thought. Uh, you know, left-wing conservatives competing with left-wing liberals to give us fascism in stereo now. You know, that's how we get it. We get it from the left and the right. Quote, the Plastics Association noted a 2004 study comparing paper with plastic bags found the manufacture of paper bags takes 2.2 times more non-renewable energy than plastic shopping bags, 4.7 times more water and emits 3.1 times more greenhouse gases. Mr. Kaplan said paper bags are degradable and can be made of recycled fibers. He said the end goal is to encourage customers to use a recyclable bag, end quote. <laughs> Plastic bags are the recyclable ones, you dummies. Don't they get it? Paper bags are not. 
You see, they're talking two different recyclables. When I'm thinking recyclable, I'm thinking I can use something again. When they're talking recyclable, uh, you know, they're, they're saying we're going to dump it into the, into the dump. That's where it's got to be recyclable. So, uh, you know, if that's what he means, if by recyclable he means paper, forget it. Been there, done that. Back in the 1950s when uh, the garbage stank and the maggots thrived in all our garbage, I've seen it. Plastic is clean, it's efficient, it's sterile, and can be both reused and recycled. Plastic bags get used once, or paper bags rather, get used once, and it's precisely because they're degradable that they can't be used for anything that gets wet, has condensation on it, or that requires an airtight seal, which porous paper cannot provide. Plastic has all kinds of uses, and all the rest of the stuff in the grocery stores, of course, is all plastic. So, again, the environmentalists, even from a point of the environment, are on the wrong side. Um, and what is council thinking? Leah and Rob, Rob, Robbie Butler of Strathroy write in letters to the editor of London Free Press. We can't imagine why anyone on city council would want to ban water bottles at an event he held in the city. For the betterment of our health, it is a lot better for us to be drinking water over pop, and we should be allowed to drink whatever we wish. I do not see an alternative to the bottles. There's no way the vendors could sell water to their customers other than in bottles. What is this city becoming when, we, when it can dictate to us on such an issue? Is City Hall turning into a dictatorship? End quote. And they say, nix the idea completely for everyone's health. And you see it again. You know, here's Meredith Clark talking in London Free Press, May 31st, who writes, Emerging Leader has a plan. Uh, as part of the livable City Cafe series, informal and interactive conversational sessions, the city's new urban designer and emerging leader himself, Sean Galloway, shared his thoughts, insights, and plans for the future of London's urban sector. Speaking at the London Public Library to a full Stevenson and Hunt room, Galloway's vision for the city included not only thoughts of more trees, but also reduced cars and more foot traffic, and that's, you know, about the size of it. You're going to be walking. And, of course, you're hearing it about air conditioning, which we're going to be starting uh, with the weather starting soon. You're going to want to get your air conditioners going. And if, uh, there's a funny story there that uh, um, Liberal MPP of London West Bentley wants us to challenge uh, Kitchener-Waterloo. We're going to turn off our air conditioners every Tuesday, you see, and you're going to sweat, and then we can measure the electricity we're going to save. And... Uh, you know, compare it to Kitchener-Waterloo, and then, if we do better, we can be the winners. Wouldn't that be fun? You want to be a winner? If you do, tune into this show again next week, when we'll return. And until then, I hope you'll come back next week. Until then, join, uh, think right, act right, think right, act right, say right, and I'm being distracted here. We'll see you next week. Take care, because got lots more to talk about on this. Oh, boy, that's what I call a peace conference. At last, things are beginning to come our way. You said it. What's that? Things are coming our way, all right. The king, Matty Harry, and a million people. 